All right, grab a Bible, and I hope you have an outline. We're going to talk about prayer tonight. We just sung about that. Our series on Wednesday night is Systematic Theology. We started off talking about the doctrine of revelation. How do we know anything about God? We talked about who God is. We talked about who we are as people made in his image and who we are as sinners. We've talked about God's grace and salvation and how that works uh, through who Jesus is and what Christ has done for us. We've covered a lot of ground. And tonight, we sort of turn the corner a little bit and the rest of the way out uh, on our Wednesday nights, we're really talking about pretty practical things. All the stuff we've talked about up to this point How do we know truth about God? How do we know uh, what God is like and and his attributes and his character and truth about salvation? All of those things form sort of the foundation of the things we'll talk about over the next few weeks. And that begins tonight as we talk about prayer. This is one of my favorite topics to study, to read books about, to teach about. And it is um, sort of, I guess, ironically, it's not because prayer is easy for me, it's because it's hard for me. It's a difficult thing for me to do well and difficult for me to do consistently and difficult for me uh, to sort of live up to what I see in the scriptures of of some of the men and the women who prayed so faithfully. Um, In my life, just personally, for whatever it's worth, I can think of two people in my whole life that I have known that I would call prayer warriors. And I know you hear that term thrown around a lot. Well, they're a prayer warrior. He's a prayer warrior. She's a prayer warrior. Um, Maybe I should throw that term around a little more than I do, but I can think of two people that I really think that is a person who understood the biblical idea of prayer and put it into practice. One of those people is a senior adult lady uh, at my home church. Her name is Betty, and... I don't think she would mind me saying this. When I was in high school, she seemed really old, like really old. And that's been a decent number of years, not a whole lot of years, but a decent number of years. Um, She was a senior adult lady who hosted a high school guy's Bible study in her home. And that doesn't sound like a match made in heaven, like a bunch of high school guys are going to come over to your house every Thursday and invade. But she cooked for us. And uh, she let us ruin her pool table in her living room, and she gave us a place to gather together, and we sat around and talked about the Bible, and it was a student-led thing, but she gave us the place to do it. How we ended up in her house, I have no idea, but we were there, and every Thursday before we did it, she would pray with the guys who were teaching that night or some of the leaders of that group, and I look back and remember that and just remember sitting in her living room and her praying for us thinking this is this is like different than what I do when I'm by myself or this is different than what I hear from other people sometimes when they pray and that's not to knock anybody else's prayer life but just to say there was something that stood out to you as unique and special the second person I think of is a guy I met in Kentucky he was a member of my church in Kentucky his name was John He was uneducated in the sense that he had not finished high school. It doesn't mean he wasn't intelligent, it just means he wasn't educated. Didn't go to college, didn't finish high school. Uh, His wife was educated, and she worked for a computer company and and had a pretty decent job. He worked at Walmart as a greeter. 
and was one of the most faithful church members that we had, one of the nicest men you would ever meet. And when we sat down on Wednesday night prayer meetings to pray and it came to his turn, he prayed shorter than anybody else. He prayed slower than anybody else. He used smaller words than anybody else. And I can't exactly put my finger on why I would call John a prayer warrior, but to sit with him and to pray with him, you just leave that time thinking there's something different, something unique about his prayer life that maybe is missing in mine or maybe that I want in mine, but it was just a a unique experience. I honestly think for most people, and John and Betty I think would both agree with this, I think for most of us, prayer is the hardest spiritual discipline. That doesn't mean the others are easy, but prayer is just challenging. It's tough. And I know we just sang a, an old favorite, Sweet Hour of Prayer, and the tune and the melody and all that is just so sweet and so nice. But let's be honest. An hour? Is that sweet for you to sit and to do nothing but pray for an hour? Because if you're anything like me, you're going to get about two and a half minutes in and realize you're thinking about something else. Then you're going to feel bad about that, and you're going to try to get back on task. But then you're going to realize, well, I feel bad, and I'm thinking about how bad I feel more than I'm actually praying now. And then you're going to feel bad about that. And then you're going to hear your phone ring or something go off or dog bark or I don't know. An hour is an awful long time. I don't know that... Uh, many of us could sit for an hour and just talk to God in prayer. And so I'm excited to talk about it tonight. I think there's a lot of confusion about prayer. And uh, I'm going to show you some things that I pulled off the internet. I'm going to do this quickly. I'm not trying to embarrass you if you've said these things, if you've thought these things, if you've put these things on the internet. Not trying to make anyone feel bad. I just want you to think a minute about some of the things we say about prayer that are a little bit strange. And we can talk about these later if you think I'm being unfair, but I pulled these off of Twitter the other day, okay? Somebody posted, these are all Christian people posting this. None of these people go to our church. Somebody said, if prayer becomes a habit, success becomes a lifestyle. And you read that and you say, oh, that's nice, rolls off the tongue. But I don't don't really think that there's any truth in that. Like, if you just pray faithfully, then you're going to be successful in school or business or life or whatever. I, I don't, you know that that's not how life works. And I think that's just a prosperity mentality of if you do this for God, then he's going to take care of you on the success side. So that's kind of crazy. Um, here's another thing that you read a lot or you hear a lot. Prayer can change things. Prayer is powerful and prayer works. Okay. Does it work all the time? Like, is it magic? Is it automatic? Is it just you go through the routine and then it's going to happen? Is there something inherently powerful in the words that come out of your mouth that bring non-present realities into existence? When you read these statements, and you've heard them, and I've said things like this, but you stop and think about it, you say, we're really assigning the power to the act of prayer rather than assigning the power to the God whom we are praying to. And I think it would be better to say, God hears our prayers. We'll talk about this later. God responds to our prayers. God is powerful, and God can do whatever he wants to do. But to assign that power to prayer puts an awful lot of burden on the person who prays for something and it doesn't come to fruition. I prayed for this person who was sick, and they didn't get better. Well, how do they 
apply those statements to their life. That's a, a challenging thing and kind of crazy. Here's another sentiment about prayer. Somebody saying, I need all the prayer I can get. Some of you laughing, you're like, yeah, that's me. I need all I can get. And sometimes we say, man, we really need to get a lot of people praying for so-and-so. There's nothing wrong with getting a lot of people praying for someone. But when I hear people say that, I sometimes wonder, like, is God up in heaven counting? Like, if we get five different churches praying for something, then he'll do it, but four is not enough? Or if we get 30 people on a prayer chain praying for something, then he might heal this person, but 27 is not going to cut it? Is it sort of like a civic petition where you've got to have so many signatures to recall a politician or to get something done, and unless you hit that threshold, it's not enough? Sometimes when we just say we, we need more people praying, we need, I think, ah, I just don't think that fits the biblical picture of, of God. Like he's up there seeing, do you have enough people praying and then I'm going to do something. Like he's reluctant to do it until we meet some threshold. One last statement, you see this a lot, um, and there's truth in it. Somebody says, God is so good, and then they fill in those dots with how he answered their prayer. And those are the kind of things we really love to throw on social media or share with our friends and things like that. And you know, God is good. Sometimes he does answer our prayers. But I just think we're slower to say that when he doesn't answer our prayers, to get on Facebook and to say, God is so good, he just has never answered this thing I've been praying about for the last month, and he is so good. We sort of think, ah, come on, God. Sometimes we just we talk about his goodness when he does what we want him to do. I think that misses the picture. So what do I need to know about prayer? Here we go. Prayer is personal communication with God in response to his self-revelation. This is just going back to things that we've already talked about. And all I'm trying to say here is prayer is a a conversation between us and God. It's a conversation that God started. We don't start it. God speaks first. He reveals truth about himself in nature, in creation. He especially reveals truth about himself in the scriptures. And I didn't give you any verses here because we've already talked about the doctrine of revelation, but you just got to get this clear. When we think about talking to God, first and foremost, we have to, to keep in our brains, God has spoken to us in his word. He initiated this conversation, and without God revealing himself to us, there would be absolutely no conversation at all. So God, God reveals himself, and prayer is our response. Okay, number two, our prayers, your prayers, are only as good as our theology or what you believe about God. If you don't know the truth about who God is and what he's like, you really don't have anything of significance to say to him. And you can have the greatest theology, orthodox, biblical, sound, right, all that stuff, and you still may not be great at prayer. It still might be a struggle. You understand that? You can have all the doctrinal things lined up and still struggle in prayer. But if you flip that and you say, I don't have any of the doctrinal stuff lined up, I don't know the truth about God, my theology is shallow and unbiblical, prayer definitely will not come natural to you, and you won't do it right. Even if you think it comes natural to you, and you think you're good at it, and you think you're faithful in it, all of it is for nothing if you don't know the person that you're talking to, if you don't have good 
theology. Okay, number three, speaking to God is a high and holy privilege because we are creatures and because we are sinners. And you've got to sort of get this in your brain. A lot of times we think, well, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm a mess, messed up person, and I make mistakes. Who am I to come before God? But take the sin out of the equation, and let's just back up to the fact that you are the creature and he's the creator. And the fact that the creature gets to talk the, the creature gets to talk to the creator is a privilege in and of itself. Then you add sin into the mix and you say it is a high privilege and a holy privilege that sinful people like us have the opportunity to speak to God and to talk to God. And I want to look at some of these verses. Look at Genesis 18. It's one of the most unexpected things you'll ever read in the Bible. Genesis 18, the last half of the chapter, is the story of Abraham talking to God, praying to God about the situation of Sodom. God is going to destroy this city, and Abraham and God are having a conversation. Abraham is praying. And you know the story. If you don't know it, you should read chapter 18. There's sort of a back and forth as they discuss the situation. I just want you to see what the text says, what the Scripture says in Genesis 18.33. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. You expect everything in us thinks that it's going to say, when Abraham was done talking to God, God left. That's not what it says. It says, when God was done talking to Abraham, then God left. Meaning, Abraham didn't have some claim on God's ear, like God had to hang around and talk to this guy. It was a privilege that Abraham got to have this conversation. And the text says, you can wrestle with this and think about the implications, but it's really a strange wording, and it's just unexpected because we're so self-centered and so self-focused. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. God was done with the conversation, and he left. It's a privilege to talk to God. Look at Luke 18. You know Isaiah 6. We've looked at that. Many times, as we've talked about God's holiness and his character, look at Luke 18. Starting in verse 9. Scriptures say, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. So we're talking about prayer. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a picture of the posture that you and I ought to have in prayer. One of humility, not one of feeling entitled to talk to God. Not one where we feel God is obligated to listen to us simply because our mouths are moving. But one where we recognize that it's a privilege to talk to God. Okay, Forms that prayer can take. Let's throw some of these out. Um, I'm just going to let you fill these blanks in. If Lucas will, you can just jump ahead for the sake of time and we'll throw all these up here and then we'll look at uh, some, of the, some of the scriptures. 
Adoration, confession, lament, thanksgiving requests. Sometimes you hear an acronym get, uh, sort of get thrown around when we're talking about prayer, and it's the ACTS acronym. A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication meaning requests. That's a great way to remember different things that you should do when you pray. You adore God, you worship Him, you confess your sins, you give thanks, you pray for others, or you pray for yourself. But the one that's missing right here in the middle is a major form of prayer in the Bible, and it's lament. And so you can figure out, you know, maybe you say lax or something like that. Add the L in there somewhere. But you've got to include this biblical form of prayer where people basically just come to God with their problems and they just sort of lay it out to him. Like, this is my problem. And they just, that's the prayer. And so, let's look at a few of these examples. Look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4, the church has experienced some persecution They've been told to stop talking about Jesus. And look what we read. They gather together, Acts 4. Here's how they begin their prayer. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. This is verse 24. And they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They start off initially just by praising God for his sovereignty and telling God what he's like. It's a strange thing because you read that and you say, well, God knows he's sovereign. He doesn't need you to tell him that. But when you read prayers in the Bible over and over and over and over and over again, people start off by telling God who he is and what he's like. They're not reminding God of anything. I think, if anything, they're reminding themselves of the one that they're coming before in this conversation. But you start off with adoration. Confession. I'll let you look up. Uh, 2 Chronicles 6 and Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is a phenomenal prayer if you want to learn how to confess your sins. Let's look at an example of lament. Look at 2 Chronicles 20. You can find laments all the way through the book of Psalms. In fact, more than any other type of psalm, you'll find laments in the book of Psalms. It's the most common sort of genre of psalm. But look at 2 Chronicles 20. This is a story about King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. And a multi-nation army is coming to attack him. And the odds are not in his favor. And things do not look good for him and the people. And so look what we read in 2 Chronicles 20. We'll start in verse 13. Uh, No, we'll start up in... um, Let's just read verse 12. I know we're short on time. End of the prayer. Our God... 2 Chronicles 20.12 Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. These guys are coming to kill us. We're not going to be able to stop them. We don't even know what to do. You know the problem. We know the problem. We're trusting you to do something about it. Execute judgment on them. He talks about that, but ultimately he just sort of lays it out before God and says, this is the problem. And we need your help with that. Um, Habakkuk is a lament where Habakkuk says, if the crops don't come in and all the food's gone and don't have anything to drink and don't have any money in the bank account, I'm still going to praise you. Things can be terrible. 
and I'm still going to come before you and worship. So lament is a type of prayer. Thanksgiving. Look at Psalm 136. Psalm 136. It's, it's framed with thanksgiving at the beginning and at the end. Verse 1, 2, and 3 say, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. In all of those verses, he's saying, We give thanks to God simply because he is God. It's not that he's done anything for us. It's just that he's God, and his love endures forever. And then look what he says down at the very end in verse 26, after he's talked about all of the great things that God does for his people. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. So just one example of giving thanks to God in prayer. Obviously, the last, the last form is request, and uh, I'm going to let you look those verses up. Exodus 32 is Moses making the request of God that he not destroy the people of Israel. Just an example of somebody asking God to do something specific. In Ephesians 3 is Paul praying for the church in Ephesus, asking that God would help them to know the depth of his love and his grace and his mercy that is unknowable. So again, another specific request. So those are different forms of prayer. One last thought of what you need to know. Okay, Prayer is a Trinitarian conversation. And I'll explain to you what we mean by that. It's a Trinitarian conversation. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to address the Father in our prayers. So we're taught to pray to God our Father. Now you may say, well... Of course, that's how Jesus would pray. He wouldn't pray to himself, speaking to himself, even though he's God. And he wouldn't necessarily pray to the Spirit because the Spirit had not been given to the church yet. So that seems kind of obvious. But it is worth pointing out, look at Matthew 6, that when the disciples came to Jesus asking to know how to pray, Jesus said, Matthew 6, Do not be like the Gentiles. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father who is in heaven. So He's calling them. When you come to prayer, you're addressing it to the Father. You're coming to God as a Father. And just one quick word of disclaimer here. Some of you had really bad fathers. And when you read that verse, you think, Oh, really? You've got to be very careful that you define fatherhood by the perfect standard of your heavenly father, not by the imperfect standard of your earthly father. You can't get that flipped. Some of you had great fathers. And even to those of you who had great fathers, I would say, you still have to make sure you judge fatherhood, not by your good but sinful earthly father, but by what the Bible describes to be true of your heavenly Father. So God is a standard of fatherhood. Jesus says that's how you address God in prayer, our Father. Secondly, we pray through Jesus, our mediator. Look at 1 Timothy 2.5. 
Paul is urging Timothy to lead his people in prayer. Timothy's a pastor. And in verse 5 he says, There is one God and there is one mediator, one go-between, between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And a lot of times we take that verse and we're, we're right to apply it to salvation, that Jesus is the only mediator between you and the Father in salvation. That's a fair application. But in the immediate context, Paul's talking about prayer. And what he's saying is there is one go-between, between the Father and you, between God and you, and that is Jesus Christ. Did you know that there are exactly zero prayers in the Bible that end with the words, in Jesus' name, amen? Zero. And yet, when we pray, you really feel sacrilegious if you don't say that at the end. You're like, everything's not going to count if I don't say that. I better make sure and throw that on there. If you don't believe me, just try to pray and just end. Just talk to God and then just end it. And you just sort of feel incomplete because it's such a habit for us. It's such a routine for us. The negative of that is it's ritual. We just say it and we don't think about it and it doesn't mean anything to us. The positive is it should mean something to us. And it should be a reminder every single time you say it at the end of a prayer. And I think it's fine to say it. I say it every time. To remind you, I only get to talk to God because of Jesus Christ. And maybe you could end your prayer that way. Lord, we know we only get to talk to you because of Jesus. Amen. Same thing as saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Don't let it be ritual. Don't let it be routine. Um, Let it have meaning to you. I will also say this. I didn't have space to put all of this on your notes, so you can jot this down in the margin if you want to. There are examples in the New Testament of people praying to Jesus, addressing Jesus in prayer. Okay? You can look up Acts 7, 59. Stephen does it. And you can look at Revelation twenty two twenty. Both examples of prayer made to Jesus. So when I say to you that Jesus teaches us to address God as Father, that ought to be our normal habit of coming to our Father in prayer. But there are other examples, biblical examples, of saying, Jesus, I need this, not saying, Heavenly Father, I need this. And so that is an acceptable way, a fine way to pray. Last idea is this. We pray in the power of the Spirit who intercedes for us. In the power of the Spirit. And you can look at Romans chapter 8. One of the most important passages in the whole Bible as you're thinking about prayer. Romans 8 verse 26 says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul's saying, you pray through Jesus the mediator, to the Father, and you're doing it in the power of the Spirit. And even as you do that imperfectly and as a sinner and you're confused and you don't know exactly what to say, the Spirit is helping you in that. And this just kind of boggles your mind. You can't make sense of it really. But the Spirit, while you are praying, is praying with you and for you. It's an an inter-Trinitarian conversation. The Father's involved, the Son's involved, and the Spirit is involved. And when you think about, uh, about the role of the Spirit, 
We do it in his power. He's praying for us. We're coming through Jesus, our mediator. You've got to sort of back up from prayer and say prayer is a distinctly Christian activity. It is something that is for Christians. If you pray through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to the Father, that's something a Christian does. Sometimes people will sort of go down this rabbit trail and they'll say things like, God only hears the prayers of Christians. And I've had people ask me that question. Does God only hear the prayer of Christians? I say, I don't really like phrasing it that way. God hears everything. He knows everything. It's not like there's some sort of wall or blinder. He's got his fingers in his ears, not listening until you tack on Jesus' name, and then he's good to to pay attention to you. So I just don't like saying God doesn't hear, because of course he hears. hears everything. But if you're going to talk about prayer biblically, you put all these pieces together and you say it is a distinctly Christian activity. It's not something that non-Christians do. They don't come through Jesus. They don't do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it is something that only Christians do. Um, That's what you need to know. Why do you need to know it? I've given you nine thoughts, and we're going to have to move through these pretty quickly. You ready? Number one, we are expected to pray. That's why you need to know this stuff. Jesus expects you to do it, so you need to know what you're doing. You need to know how to do it. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you pray, do it like this. Not if you feel like it, or if you decide to, or if you get around to it, but when you do it, here's how you do it. Look what Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Something we're supposed to continue in. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. You are expected to pray. Number two, your prayer life will reveal what you believe about God. Your prayer life is going to tell on you, in other words. You can take the systematic theology quiz at the end of this class and get all the questions right and fill all the blanks in right and answer all the questions right and all that stuff. But if we sit down and listen to you pray, it's going to reveal what you truly believe about God in your heart. It might reveal that what you really believe about God, even though you know this isn't the right answer, but it might reveal what you really believe about God is that He exists to do what you want Him to do. If we just stopped and listened to yours or your prayers or my prayers, we may walk away saying, well, he or she seems to think that God exists to be like a genie where you go to with wishes and he just comes through with whatever your specific request is. And I say that out loud and you say, I don't believe that. No one in this room believes us. We're the elite Wednesday night crew. We know better than that. We've been through this study But I'm just telling you, you can give the right answer and your prayer life will tell on you. There's a guy named Reuben Torrey that wrote a lot about prayer. And here's what he had to say about prayer on this point. He said, we should never utter one syllable of prayer either in public or in private until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and we are actually praying to him. Meaning, this is not something you should just rush into lightly. This is something that you should think about 
sort of get your mind focused on what it is that you're doing and who it is that you're talking to. So your prayer life will reveal what you believe about God. Number three, prayer is rooted in dependence. If anything else, when we come to God in prayer, we ought to be saying, I'm needy and you can supply the need. I don't have the wisdom, the power, the ability, the resources, the whatever, and you have them at your disposal. So we come to God as needy. And I didn't give you any verses because I just think that's fundamental to all prayer. I mean, why else pray unless you acknowledge there is something I lack and I need it? It's rooted in dependence. There's a book about missions called Let the Nations Be Glad by a guy named John Piper. We'll talk about that book when we talk about missions on Wednesday night. One chapter in that book is about prayer, and this is what he says. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Mm. When I say dependence, I'm not saying I'm dependent on God to make sure I have all the things I want as I just lounge comfortably in the den. Saying, I'm in the mission, I'm in the fight, I'm in the battle, and I am in need of God's help. I'm dependent on him, and I come to him in prayer, acknowledging that. Number four, God does answer prayer. It's an amazing thought. And the example that I always come back to, and I scratch my head and I say, I cannot make sense of it, I cannot fully wrap my arms around it, is Exodus 32, and we're not going to read Exodus 32, but look at Psalm 106, and I'll remind you of the story. Just mentioned it a minute ago. In Exodus 32, Moses has gone up the mountain, and Moses is receiving the law from God, the Ten Commandments. The people of Israel are down at the bottom of Mount Sinai breaking the Ten Commandments, rebelling against God, Aaron builds the idol, Moses comes down and Aaron says, oh, we just threw the metal in and out popped this idol. I don't know what happened. The people are crazy and Moses is angry and God is angry. And Moses goes to the Lord even before he comes down the mountain and he's praying for the people and he's saying, please don't destroy the people. God says they've broken out. They're out of control. And Moses says, please don't destroy them. The Egyptians will hear it. It won't look good on your character. You've just showed them how powerful you were and then now it's going to look like you can't keep them alive. And you read this story in the whole scope of the Old Testament and you say, okay, God had a plan to bless Abraham's family, right? From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and these 12 tribes and he establishes them in Egypt and he brings them out. This is all part of his plan. And we know the plan is to continue. There's going to be some judges and then there's going to be some kings. David's going to be this great king, but he's going to mess up and Solomon and all. It's all part of his plan. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows exactly how it's going to play out. You come to this episode in Exodus 32 and you say, God's talking about destroying the plan. Like, it's the plan, but God's going to blow it up. And Moses is praying to God saying, don't blow the plan up. Don't, let's not do that. And you say, well, what was the plan? Was he really going to blow them up or was he not? And everything in me says, well, he wasn't. Because he knows how it was going to turn out. David hasn't come yet. Solomon hasn't come yet. The Messiah hasn't come yet. He's not going to derail this. And then I read Psalm 106. Psalm 106. 
And it's talking about Exodus 32. And uh, look what it says in Psalm 106, verse 23. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. If Moses doesn't pray, God destroys them. But it wasn't his plan to ultimately destroy them, we know. And the only way you can fit that together is to add in the thought that it was part of God's plan that Moses pray for the people. That was part of the plan all along. And yet you read Psalm 106 and you take it at face value and you say, if Moses doesn't do it, they get destroyed. And God really answered that prayer didn't necessarily change the big picture plan because God included in the plan Moses praying. And again, my head is hurting trying to make sense of it. But you come to Psalm 106 and you say, God did answer that prayer. He really did. Here's the counter, number five. Sometimes God's answer is no. And sometimes his answer is stop talking to me about it. No and be quiet. Deuteronomy 3. Quickly. This is our good friend Moses, Mr. Prayer Warrior. God answers his prayers. And Moses has disobeyed the Lord in the book of Numbers, right in between his brother and his sister dying. He's sort of in a rough spot in his life, and he's frustrated with the people, and he doesn't obey God. And God says, You don't get to go into the promised land. After all these 40 years, after all the years as a shepherd in Uh, Midian and after all the stuff you went through in Egypt you don't get to go in and Moses says this Deuteronomy 3 Moses as he prays this by the way he can see the promised land it's like four miles away and he's up on a hill and he's looking down on it it's right there he's tempted to make a run for it Deuteronomy 3.23 I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, he is pleading, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. He would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah. We just sang about Pisgah, and some of you are like, what in the world is Pisgah? This is Pisgah. And lift up your eyes westward, northward, southward, eastward, and look at it with your eyes. You shall not go over the Jordan. Charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of the people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. We stayed right where we were. Even though in his strength... God had empowered this man late into his life. He could have made a run for it and tried to swim across the Jordan. He stayed exactly where he was because even though he's pleading with God, God says no. The answer is no. He's answered dozens of Moses' prayers in the affirmative, doing what Moses asked him to do. And in this one, he says nope and don't talk about it anymore. And you can see a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 9, Paul's thorn in the flesh. And Paul pleads with the Lord to take it away, and the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So sometimes the answer is no. Number six, corporate prayer is important. 
For the sake of time, I'll let you look the verses up, especially in Acts. The church is always praying together. They're doing it together. They're coming together, and one of the things they do is pray. You see it in the Old Testament, too. 1 Kings 8 is Solomon dedicating the temple, and he gathers everyone together for a prayer service before they do it. Over and over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, God's people come together, and they pray. Sometimes they do it individually. The individuals in the group are praying, and they're in the same place. Sometimes someone like Nehemiah is leading that, uh, or uh, one of the, the pastors in this early church is leading it, but God's people pray together. That's important. Number seven, sin can hinder our prayers. And I'm going to let you look those verses up as well. James says in James chapter 4, you're asking, but you're doing it selfishly, so the answer is no. And Peter tells husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3, some of you guys are total jerks to your wives, and that's hindering your prayers. God is not listening to your prayers. He said, he doesn't hear it? Of course he hears it. But he's really not listening. There's going to be no response to what you're asking for because you're wicked and you're mean to your wife. Other passages you can read about that. Sin hinders our prayers. Number eight, prayer should be scheduled and spontaneous. It should be short and it should be long. And by far the best example of this in the Bible is just to read the book of Nehemiah. All the way through Nehemiah as they're working on this wall, Nehemiah is praying. And sometimes he does it for days at a time. Sometimes it's a one-sentence prayer that he just pops off on the spur of the moment. Sometimes he does it alone. Sometimes he gathers all the people together. It takes lots of different forms. But it should be scheduled and spontaneous. And here's the reality, just to get practical. Most of us in the room are better at either scheduled prayer or spontaneous prayer. Like some of you are really good at throughout the day talking to the Lord praying throughout the day, but you're lousy at setting aside even five minutes once a day to talk to God uninterrupted. Others of us, this kind of is me, I'm better at blocking off time so I can check it off some kind of list and feel like I've done it for the day and then go out the rest of the day and I just, my mind's all over the place, but it's not in prayer. But most of us sort of are good naturally at one of those or the other. And I think the biblical picture is it's both. If all you ever give God is your spare moments throughout the day and you never schedule time to do nothing but talk to him, I think that cheapens it. It's like I'm going to give you my leftover 30 seconds every time I have it throughout the day. On the other hand, if all it is is a scheduled thing and you check it off your box and you get it done and you move on and you forget about it, I don't think that you get the idea of praying without ceasing. And I think Nehemiah is a picture of of both of those things. Number nine. Bible describes fasting as a way to focus our prayers. And you can read the biblical examples I've given you here. My point is to say to you, fasting does not add power to our prayers. Fasting does not manipulate God or twist his arm into him doing what we're asking him to do. Fasting reminds us of our dependence on God. It gives us more time to pray might heighten our spiritual awareness. It might make us pray with more urgency. It focuses our prayers, but it doesn't necessarily add power to our prayers, and you can see examples of that. Um, I didn't put this on your notes. Just one question to think about. How does a person learn to pray? 
I think the answer I've heard from so many people in my life is you just do it. You just start doing it. And I just don't think that's the best answer to tell somebody. Like, if you don't know what you're doing, don't just start doing it. Like, if you don't know algebra, don't just open to page 265 and start writing numbers down. You need to know what you're doing. And I don't mean to say that prayer is some highly complicated thing, but I do think it's not something we just naturally do well. And so I think it's incumbent on us to look at the Scriptures and say, how do people in the Bible do it? What is it? What does the Bible have to say about prayer? I need to understand what it is I'm even doing in this conversation before I jump in and try to do it. And then I think you get around people who know how to pray. True prayer warriors. Not people who can say eloquent words and ramble on and on and on, but people who really are talking to God and you get around them and you listen to them and you do all of those things and then at the end of the day you kind of just have to start praying and, and do it yourself. So a couple of books and then we'll wrap up. There's a guy named Don Whitney, and he is sort of recognized as the scholarly authority on spiritual disciplines. He's actually, about the time that I left seminary, he was coming to Southern Seminary, and he oversees the Ph.D. program in biblical spirituality. And he has written some really great books about spiritual disciplines, and they talk about prayer One is called Simplify Your Spiritual Life. It's a super easy read, super short chapters, gives some very helpful tips about prayer. Another one is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. This one is way more in-depth and talks about what prayer is and how you do it and why you do it. And uh, both, both good reads if you're interested in learning about prayer. The best book I've ever read about prayer is by a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, and he creatively titled this book, Prayer. And it's phenomenal. Super, super good about what it is to pray and why it's hard and how you do it well and all that sort of stuff. So a really great book if you're interested in reading about prayer. 